This is Upfront Tech. I'm Brian Edwards Teeker. Today, every one of us lives in two places in the flesh and blood physical world and in the sprawling collection of data that we spin off every time we open an account, use a phone, walk by a camera, or click something. Now, that data is the bread and butter of the titans of tech. Google and Facebook are not selling you anything. They're selling information about you to their advertisers. But it is also the bread and butter of a shadier industry. The intelligence contractors that design the software that combs through data to decide everything from who should be targeted for an investigation to who should be killed from afar. Our next guest has spent years looking into that world. Prathap Chatterjee is executive director of CorpWatch, co-author of a book called Verax, The True History of Whistleblowers, Drone Warfare, and Mass Surveillance. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Brian. It's always a pleasure to be here at KPFA. The book starts with your work on the software providers that were helping to target drone assassinations. How did you get started looking into that angle? We were looking into software contractors that worked for the what, what's called the LEA, the, the law enforcement agencies. So that's not just drones. It's military, it's police, the drug enforcement agencies. And these are people that practice mass surveillance. They often hack into people's phones and computers, track your, your number wherever you go. So this is something that is actually much more widespread. And if if your listeners have ever heard of Edward Snowden, which I assume they have, they will know that, in fact, this is a much bigger industry. And so I started working on this long before Edward Snowden came out and, and, and spoke out in 2013. And I knew there was a connection to the drone industry, but I didn't know the exact connection or how it worked. And so that's where my journey began, to find out who these people, and I was assisted uh, and collaborated with WikiLeaks, who had found a group of documents, a, a, a stack of documents, shall we say, of these companies and the services they sell. So some of these companies are actually quite public about what they do. There's a company in Italy called Hacking Team, and they are very proud of what they do. On the other hand, there are other companies, I, I ran into a Chinese company, that you couldn't find anywhere. They weren't on the internet. They didn't want to be known. I ran into them in, in a conference center where they were selling their wares to people. But it is very definitely a shady, uh, a shadowy industry, as you call them, Brian, because they don't necessarily want people to know what they do. On the other hand, they claim that they do this legally, and they do it for the law enforcement agencies. And all they do is make software, and it's up to the governments that they sell to uh, to figure out the warrants and what they're going to do with the data. All they are, what they're doing in this industry is writing software. It's curious to me that that function winds up in the private sector. These agencies are very proprietary about what they do. They control access to extremely sensitive data. Why is so much of the software developed outside of government bounds? Well, there's always been a um, collaboration between the tech industry and government. That's not actually new. And in the United States, the National Security Agency, which once again your listeners might have heard of, that's the agency on which Edward Snowden blew the whistle, 
does develop a lot of its technology in-house. Not all of it, but quite a bit of it. Initially, the p- companies that I was looking into uh, were smaller boutique firms that were selling this technology to governments overseas and to local police forces. Because what the NSA does with its multi-billion dollar budget and, and top-level mathematicians, let's say the city of Oakland or the city of San Antonio can get their hands on. And and the federal government doesn't share it with local governments. The same goes for, let's say, the governments of Libya or Syria or Egypt, which are three countries that we reference early in the book that are buying technology from companies in Germany, in France, in the United States. So they say, well, we have to enforce the law, and we need to find out when somebody... I remember the hacking team people telling me, the ones from Italy, saying, you would want the police to track down child pornographers, wouldn't you? Or people that had been involved in grand theft or or murder. And sometimes the only way they can track them down is by following them, following their phones and checking their email. And to be honest, this, this may not sit well with everybody. I do think that so long as these law enforcement agencies have a warrant, I think it is okay for them to go look into people's electronic affairs in order to apprehend criminals and that sort of thing. I would want lots of checks and balances on that. I wouldn't write a blank check to the city of Oakland or to anybody else. But I do think that so long as there's a legal system in place, they should be able to look for this. And unfortunately for them, since each of these uh, cities, so for example, there's a company in Florida called Harris. And Harris makes something called an MC catcher. And uh, they actually have a different name uh, for their, their device. It's called a Stingray. And this has been rumored for a long time. We've known about it. They have been reluctant to talk about it, but the ACLU discovered a lot of information about this company actually by studying court depositions by police officers where they referenced the fact that they were able to find the location of a suspect by tracking their phone. So the ACLU at some point said, how are they doing this? What is this technology? And they figured out it was this company in Florida. So Harris develops this and sells it to federal agencies, I don't know if they sell to the NSA, and they sell to local police stations around the country. So this is something that, because we don't live in the Soviet Union where there's one government that runs everything, but because there are local law enforcement agencies and there are countries that don't have this ability, the private sector is almost certainly going to be involved in this, has been and will be for a long time to come. It's unlikely to go away. I mean, you talked about whether the technology is okay if there's a warrant, but it seems that the application of data is very different from what our legal system is set up to accommodate, right? So warrants are built around a system of criminal investigation where you target an individual, you tell the judge, here's why this person is worthy of surveillance. But the way intelligence agencies use data is about finding patterns that tell you what people to look at, right? rather than first identifying the person and then pulling their data. So one of the things we do in the book is we actually divide this world of surveillance technology, spy technology, into four groups. Tracking, where they're tracking your phone, and they could just be tracking a single phone. Hacking, in which they hack into, let's say, email or computer, and then mass surveillance. So police agencies typically should not be conducting mass surveillance. That's the realm of of, 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 of national or federal governments. However, police agencies have done that. In London, for example, I remember there were these riots and the government you know, flew aircraft overhead and collected 
all the data from all the phones that were in the vicinity around these riots and protests and things like that. That's mass surveillance. Typically, they want the ability to do that, but they shouldn't be doing that. What Snowden uncovered and told the world about was the fact that the federal government is, in fact, taking all of our information, certainly all of our metadata, all the time in the hope of looking for patterns and also because they believe that they can go and look into the past, which is deeply problematic. So it's, it's one thing to say, I'm going to look at patterns in the past so I can find people that could have been involved in incidents. What they're saying is that if somebody commits a crime in the future, we want to be able to look into their past. That's not even patent recognition. It's, it's more akin to minority report. I guess that does bring us around to the drone program. So how did you land on drones from software being marketed to local law enforcement for investigations? So uh, I've, as a reporter, I've covered the war on terror for a long time, ever since it began, starting actually reporting for KPFA right here. And then traveling to Afghanistan, I've been there four times. I've been to Iraq four times. I've been to Pakistan three times and throughout the region. And I realized as the, uh, the Bush administration was winding down and the Obama administration came in, that there was going to be a paradigm shift in the way war was done. Is the, uh, Obama was elected partly because the U.S. citizens were upset that American soldiers would be sent overseas. And the technology was coming to the point where it was possible to be able to observe people on the other side of the world in near real time. And I started to hear these reports about innocent people being killed and people being you know, killed you know, without any advance warning. I was working at the time for an agency in Britain, a news agency called the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. So I asked for permission to go to Pakistan. I traveled with a group called Reprieve, which is an NGO in Britain, that was meeting with drone victims. And I thought, if I talk to these drone victims, maybe I'll be able to figure out how these drones work. So my first trip, and that's where the book kind of begins, is to Islamabad, where I met uh, some 50 people, almost all of whom were relatives of people who were killed, two of whom had actually been injured in drone strikes. And we sought to film them, hear from their stories. So that's where I began my journey, and that's where the book begins. And what happened then was actually very tragic. So I filmed all 50 people, and three days after I filmed them, the CIA killed one of the people I filmed, whom I'd actually had dinner with, a young man by the name of Tariq Aziz. And they have admitted to it. The Washington Post interviewed people at the CIA who said, yeah, we did kill Tariq Aziz. We believe he was a terrorist. He was just 16. So that's kind of where my journey began. And uh, these were actually happening simultaneously in the sense, actually, within about a month of, of these two things, I was looking at the contract, the surveillance contractors, and I was looking at drones. And I felt that there had to be a connection between them. And to, to be able to connect the two, I needed to understand the technology. And I realized at some point I needed more than meeting victims who don't actually know how they were killed. I needed to actually delve into the military itself and to meet with soldiers and technologists inside the intelligence agencies in the military. And so the book eventually, as it tracks my work from, I think, 2011 to all the way to this year, to 2017, tells the story of the Air Force whistleblowers in particular that I met with. And there were about nine that I think that I met with, Lisa Ling, Sean Westmoreland, Brandon Bryant, and a group of others. And it's their story I tell. And they explained to me partly how the technology works, 
they had to be very careful because, of course, they could be prosecuted if they'd given away any secrets. Could you, like, walk us through step by step how a typical drone operation works? Okay. So the average drone, and I say average because the kind of drones that are used for targeted killing is the Predator. And now they've moved to another vehicle called the Reaper. I should qualify that because, in fact, most of what the drones do is surveillance. So 99% of what they do is they watch people. And in order to do that, every drone, every Predator drone, has 180 people working on it. So unlike, let's say, a U-2, which is one person aboard and maybe a, a support crew, these drones have a huge number of people behind them. And, and when you talk about people working on it, you mean people at remote locations on the ground? So they're scattered all over the world. Uh-huh. Let's use the Beale Air Force Base as an example. So there would be people who would manage the, the Global Hawk, so they would repair it, they would dispatch it overseas. So those are just, let's say, engineering people. But there's also people who fly the plane, the pilots, what are called sensor operators, which are people who manage the cameras and the device tracking uh, technology, such as phone tracking technology or listening technology. And then you have people who look at the information that comes back. So you have imagery analysts. You have geospatial analysts who try and figure out where people are. So on any given flight, you'll have a little trailer in which two people sit, the pilot and the sensor operator. But above them, you're going to have somebody who's managing the operation. You're going to have a lawyer. And then, and oftentimes, some of the biggest bases where, where, where these uh, camera operators and pilots sit is in Nevada, so the Creech Air Force Base. And then people watching the imagery might be at Beale. They might be in Florida. They might be in South Dakota. And then, of course, you have the people who launch the actual aircraft. So you have another set of pilots. And partly because of technology, they use two kinds of radio technology, KU-band technology and C-band technology. So it's possible to launch a drone and to keep it flying with real-time tracking in about a couple of hundred-mile radius. But in order to be able to observe everything that's happening, and since most of the soldiers that do that are all the way over in the United States, you need a different set of transmissions, and that goes via satellite. So the, the pilots that are here and the sensor operators that are in Nevada or Beale will be watching things with a slight delay, about a second or two. So that's why you have so many people. You need somebody to launch it. You need somebody to manage it initially. Then you need somebody on the other side of the world to be able to liaise with the imagery analysts. And they don't really want to send thousands of people to Djibouti or to Afghanistan. They would prefer to do it for the reasons we spoke of initially. They would prefer to do this in the United States, so they don't have to send as many soldiers overseas. Okay, so you have image analysts, you have pilots, you have people who are managing the sensor arrays. How are they communicating with each other during a drone flight? So they communicate by an instant chat system. I think it's called Merch. It's spelled M-I-R-C. Essentially doing the same thing you might do if you were chatting with somebody in Google Chat. And so they talk to each other about what's happening on the ground. You actually work in silos. Uh, Sean Westmoreland, who's one of the people we, we speak to in the book, as a radio technician, he said, it's actually very isolating. It's very different from being in the trenches with a group of people. You're sitting in, in front of a computer. And the only way you can really 
check in on each other is is through this chat. So you don't see what the others see. You simply rely on this essentially text chat. Got it. So how crew like that, connected over chat, looking at what's coming in through the sensors of a drone, how do they come to the conclusion about whether or not to try to kill someone? So again, I want to break drone operations into two groups. One is what's called overwatch, where the drone operators are watching over soldiers in the field. And so then they are tracking, let's say, a soldier on a mission, and we show uh, one of those uh, in the book. And it's their job to make sure that nobody sneaks up on them. In that particular case, they can and do take decisions very quickly. They have to go through what's called a JAG, a judge advocate general, a lawyer. They have to fill out a form before they kill somebody. But oftentimes, if they're in the middle of, let's say, a firefight or a a threat to a soldier, they're going to take that decision very quickly. On the other hand, there are drones that are looking for quote-unquote terrorists. Those decisions are taken days in advance. The powers that be, the Obama administration or now the Trump administration, will say, we're looking for these people. They have a kill list. And they say, if you find these people, we want you to go and track them and then potentially kill them. Then what they do is they use something called cross-sensor queuing. So if you're a soldier, you don't actually know who you're looking for. The computer has been programmed to track a phone number, and when that phone number comes into view, shall we say, of the drone, the drone points a camera at that phone number. So you're not looking for a phone number. You don't actually look for a person's face because, in fact, the quality of the the drone imagery is actually quite poor. It's very hard to be able to tell who somebody is uh, from essentially two miles up, which is where the drones are. If you think about this, a drone uses actually a fairly low-quality camera. It's it's the equivalent of a, a closed-circuit TV that you might see in a building security. That's the quality of the imagery. And there's a reason for that, because that imagery, there's a lot of that imagery. It's sent in real time. It has to bounce off a satellite and come halfway across the world. So there is this thing called cross-sensor queuing by which the computer has been programmed to find numbers and then point cameras, and then the soldier's job is simply to say, I see somebody, they're going into this house, and then a decision is made through this complicated set of procedures involving lawyers, the judge advocate generals, to push a button and kill somebody. And if you're tracking an individual who you, if you definitely know who this person is, let's say Anwar Awlaki, and you know that he's out in the desert and he's on his own or with a couple of other people, the chances of your being able to kill him are actually pretty high. On the other hand, if you're looking at a city like Karachi or a city like Berkeley, where there are many people with many phones, you're actually going to have a lot more problems because phones can get swapped around, phones can be left behind. Uh, This is a technology that doesn't work very well outside of very unique situations. And here's an interesting thing for our listeners here in the Bay Area. Most drone technology was actually, military drone technology was designed in California. Mm -hmm. And that's partly because of the testing bases here, China Lake, uh, down in uh, uh, Los Angeles, and there's a place called El Mirage. And so what they did is they went and tested out in the California desert. California has something that's very much in common with Waziristan and Yemen. We're talking about not a lot of cloud cover. We're talking about deserts with not a lot of people. And so, so long as you're tracking people in deserts where there's not a lot of rain, it actually works 
relatively well if you're tracking an individual. The moment you have rain, those drones can't fly. The moment you have a lot of people, those drones are in a lot of trouble. So the deep secret of drones is they actually won't work as a killing mechanism in most parts of the world. And in fact, they crash quite often. The Global Hawk, the drone that is uh, operated from um, the Beale Air Force Base, I forget the exact number, but I think it is only actually operational something like a third of the time because it is actually very hard to fly a plane remotely. So when you think about driving, when you're driving, let's say you're driving across the Bay Bridge and there's a high wind, you will feel that wind as you're driving. On the other hand, if you're a passenger and you don't have your foot on the pedal, you're not going to feel it as much, right? Same thing goes for a plane. If you're flying a plane, you need to feel those winds around you. Otherwise, you could be blown off course. How do you fly a plane you know, in a different climate and a different country all across the world? Well, there are ways they do it. They actually use fairly rudimentary systems. They hang what's called a horsetail in front of the drone so they can watch the way the wind is blowing. And there are actually two cameras in all drones. One is a color camera, which is to see where they're going. And the lower resolution camera is used to track people because without using the bulk of that data to be able to figure out where the drone is, it's actually not going to be very useful. So these are actually very poor quality instruments to track people and to be able to identify people accurately. And that's the big secret. It raises so many questions. The first question is very basic. What is the legal framework for the CIA being able to order an assassination on someone who hasn't gone to trial? The CIA operates, and indeed the Pentagon, it's not just the CIA that kills people. How do they get that legal permission? Well, they operate just as the Bush administration did under the auspices of the legislation that was passed after 9-11, which says there is a war on terror, it is global, and therefore we are able to kill anybody that we deem an enemy combatant. It is essentially the same thing. And the Obama administration has argued that they, too, had the ability to kill people using this, these legal arguments. The authorization for use of military force. AUMF, yeah. So the second question is, you know, once the kill order's been issued and the drone's up in the air and it is tracking a mobile phone through a city or a desert, what steps does the drone crew go through to confirm that they've actually got the person they're targeting? Typically, this kind of an operation is planned uh, long in advance. So that, certainly in the Obama administration, those orders will be signed by a variety of people, including the president himself. So Obama actually authorized most of these kills, the 573 drone strikes that killed people in the Obama administration. Towards the end, he delegated it to the Pentagon. But through most of his, we don't know exactly, he's never published this information, but most of his, he authorized himself. At the moment of pressing the button, the judge advocate general will make sure that three sets of conditions are met. So they use what are called the laws of armed conflict. Then they use what's called special instructions. And finally, they use the rules of engagement. And then they are required still, under the documents of the U.S. administration, the Obama administration published, they are required to use what's called near certainty. So they have to be nearly certain, not absolutely certain, that they have the right person to target in their crosshairs. And they also have to be nearly certain that no innocent civilians will die. 
And that to me is, is a whole can of worms. What is nearly certain? How is that decided? It will depend on whoever's on the kill floor, as it's called, on the day. Essentially, you just have to fill out this form. And then if the commander and the lawyer that was in charge of checking off on this agreed, there was no evidence, there was no, you know, in Guantanamo, even people who have been accused of, you know, terrorism get a U.S. military lawyer to defend them. In drone wars, it is up to the soldiers and the CIA and the political powers to make that final decision. You describe a requirement that there be near certainty that no civilians be killed as a result of a, a planned drone strike. However, empirically, one of the things you chronicle in Varex is that often these assassinations take multiple attempts. There are people killed who are not the target and that the deaths of civilians seem to vastly outnumber the deaths of people who are actually targeted for killings. There's some dispute on those points. Obviously, the U.S. government, the Obama administration says they did release documents, I think about two years ago, in which they, they said they had killed about roughly 3,000 people, maybe 2,800 people. And they admitted that 64 of those people were civilians, at a minimum 64, maybe as many as 116. There are other people who track this. The Bureau of Investigative Journalism, where I worked, they uh, keep a tally. The Bureau has probably the most rigorous system of checking. And they, if you look at their numbers, it suggests about 22% of people that were killed were innocent civilians. They're suggesting then 78% of the people were guilty. And we actually have no way of knowing whether or not they were guilty because they didn't have access to any kind of court system or to defend themselves. It's purely based on newspaper reports. So the Obama administration says 2 to 4%. The Bureau of Investigative Journalism says 22%. In my opinion, if you have not been given a opportunity to defend yourself, everybody's an innocent civilian. This drone system is actually deeply problematic because it allows the government to kill with impunity, right? It gets around any kind of legal system. But in addition to that, it is also deeply inaccurate, right? And we know that because a lot of children age two have been killed. There's another criteria they use, which is actually quite interesting. They target what are called military-aged males. So the, the Obama administration said, okay, children are uh, off limits, although they did kill many children, women are off limits, then they made a lot of mistakes. The, wait, wait, what, what are you saying? Are you saying if they order an assassination on someone and it kills that person, but it also kills military-aged men at the same location, that they are not automatically counted as civilians? Well, they that is actually what the Obama administration did. They would not perhaps characterize it quite as you did, Brian. They would say that they're what are called double-tap uh, uh, drone strikes. They will target a person, and they will kill that person, and then they will kill anybody else who comes to their rescue because they assume that they are supporters of this person. But um, the Obama administration believed that women and children were, should not be uh, targeted ever. Military-age ma- men could always be targeted, but you had to find... Um, a good reason to kill them. But they would sometimes do what are called signature strikes. So they would say, we've found a pattern, and we think this group of people fit the correct pattern, and therefore we're going to conduct what's called a signature strike and kill them because they're most likely terrorists, even though we don't know their names 
and we don't know what they've done. And there's a actually a very famous example of four Taliban, alleged Taliban, and they spotted a house in which there were four individuals coming and going. And they determined that these four individuals were people they wanted to kill. And so they did two things. First, they observed them by video. And second, they used what's called thermal imaging. They looked to see if anybody else was present in the house because they believed that with their thermal imagery, they'd be able to spot if there was, let's say, uh, uh, an infant or a small child, and they would be able to spot if there was anybody else, such as, let's say, women folk, right? And when they determined through a, a several hundred hours of video surveillance and thermal imagery that there were only four people, all of whom were carrying guns and they believed were, were terrorists, they ordered a missile strike. And when the missile struck and hit this house, they were horrified to discover that not four bodies, but six bodies came out. And a couple of months later, they discovered that they had killed an American, an aid worker by the name of Warren Weinstein, and an Italian, another aid worker by the name of Giovanni Loporto. They were hostages, and they'd been there for several years. How was it that they weren't able to see them through their video imagery? Well, because they were hostages and they were in the house. But this is why they're supposed to use more than one way of being able to track people. And so it's maybe following their phones. And in, in this particular case, it's using the thermal imagery. Well, it's actually quite easy to, to fool uh, thermal imagery. One is you can throw a blanket over yourself and then the body heat, heat gets dissipated. The second is you could hide under a tree. You could be in a tunnel or a basement and they wouldn't see you. So they kill these six people because they were nearly certain because they had two forms of evidence. One was video and second was thermal imagery. But it turns out that, in fact, the thermal imagery was completely wrong, that they had missed two grown men who had been there for months, if not years. And this was just on the basis of a signature of four military-aged men with guns. They had Correct. not actually identified them as specific individuals they I thought th were specific uh, threats. We don't know exactly, but that's what we believe. The government doesn't publicize or promote the idea of signature strikes. Of the 6,000-odd people that have been killed to date, they have only released a couple of hundred names. So we don't know who else they've killed. What about the other type of drone strike, the one where a drone is monitoring the area surrounding a military group on patrol? How do they? What is the process they go through for identifying a threat? Every military patrol that goes out on its own um, is supported sometimes by helicopters or, or by radio contact and often by drones. So they'll put a drone in the air, they'll follow people, and then they try to ascertain whether or not there's a possibility that they might be attacked. And there's an example that we use in the book, and we it, it is the only drone strike for which we have the entire transcript of everything that happened. It's, we call it, it's often called the Kirk 97 strike, and it took place in Afghanistan. And so essentially, the soldiers were trying to guess based on their visual observation and also through uh, radio chatter that they picked up whether or not this particular group of soldiers were under threat from three vehicles that were nearby. This is in rural Afghanistan. It was the middle of the night, and they spotted a convoy of three vehicles driving down a road in Daikundi and Uruzgan provinces, and they noticed that these vehicles were heading towards the soldiers. So they panicked and thought these vehicles 
were, were trying to attack the soldiers. But in fact, it turned out they had jumped to conclusions. It was late at night. They were using probably thermal imagery. There were women and children in this group, but they didn't see them because they never got out of the vehicles. So in this particular case, the Kirk 97 case, the imagery analyst said, we think we spot children. And they're like, well, whoa, how old are they? Are they 12 and above? Because they're 12 and above, that probably makes them military-age males. Are there any guns? Well, we see thermal imagery that suggests that they're carrying guns, right? The difference between a gun being fired and a cigarette is actually very hard to tell from two miles up. But because they feel that there's imminent threat, they take split-second decisions. Because they're keeping an eye on soldiers on the ground and meant to protect them from threats they can't see. Correct. I have made presentations on this technology uh, to people who were on the National Security Council, uh, to uh, people who worked at the Pentagon. They know the drones are actually a very bad way to track people. Well, then why are they used so prevalently? They're used in places where, where they can't get uh, access to easily. They're also mostly used for political reasons. You know, the uh, Obama administration wanted to be able to prove that it was tough on, on, on terrorism. So they took the fight to Waziristan. They took the fight to Yemen. In fact, Osama bin Laden was in neither place. He was in Abbottabad in a highly populated area. So it is convenient because drones can operate in certain places. It is a weapon of convenience at this point in a place where it is easy to be able to write off individuals who have no ability to be able to come and complain in Congress. It's an easy way to look like you're doing something about the threat to the homeland. Pratap Chatterjee, how has the drone program or the use of drones changed with the changing of the guard in Washington? Is the Trump administration on a different footing? I would like to say one way or the other that they are. And I think the, the, the simple answer is they're not. It's the same program. The Trump administration is often threatened to take the gloves off. We do portray in the book a incident in Yakla, Yemen, where drones were involved and soldiers were involved in doing a raid. Um, helicopters were involved, in which Trump did take a decision to send in uh, this, this group of soldiers to, to raid a village in Yemen. But in general, Trump, as far as we know, has not been deeply involved in calling in drone strikes. But it is the same system, and the military has a lot more power over it now than they did. There has been discussion, although we don't know that this has been approved, that the CIA will get the authority to kill more people. There has been certainly an increase in the number of strikes. There has been an increase in the number of bombs dropped. But it is essentially the same system. One of the most interesting things you document in the book is your interviews with ex-drone operators. And one of the common threads that comes up is that many of them who did all their work from the safety of trailers in the American Southwest suffer from PTSD, just like battlefield soldiers. A lot of operators, I don't know if it's a majority, but certainly there is a, a significant percentage of drone operators who have suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. It is something that the Air Force not only knows about, in fact has deployed a guy, his name is Wayne Chappelle, and I've interviewed him. They realize this is a serious problem. 
It is partly because even though you're not in the battlefield, you still, especially if you're an imagery analyst, start to relate to these people. You see them every day. You know, you know about their children. You know about the arguments they get into. You know about their friends. And so you realize that when an order comes through to push a button and to kill somebody, you understand that, in fact, the people that you have targeted are likely to be innocent. So I think the PTSD stems from from a couple of different things. One is, and the military likes to point out that these drone operators put in three times as many hours as fighter jet pilots, so they have a they have a much greater workload, and they're doing 12-hour shifts, uh, sometimes six days a week, so there's a lot of pressure on them, and that's one of the reasons why they crack. There's a lot of drug abuse and alcohol abuse on these bases, so there's, that's one reason. But it is also, I personally believe, because many of them realize how inaccurate the technology is. In some ways, if you're in the field and you're confronted by somebody who's about to shoot at you, and you have a gun and you, in order to protect yourselves, pull a trigger, you're less likely, I think, to be affected if you know that you had no other choice or if you believed in your mission and you discarded the location. You know. On the other hand, when you're on the other side of the world and you don't know for sure, I think you're much more likely to have mental health issues. There's one... Uh, drone uh, sensor operator, Brandon Bryant, that we, we cite in the book, where he talks about the fact that he had taken a shot in which he wasn't sure if it was a child or a dog. And his his um, commander said, per the review, it's a dog. You know, The reality that Brandon knew was that they didn't actually know the difference. So you worked with the organization you mentioned earlier, Reprieve, to bring former drone operators together with drone strike survivors and families of, of victims of those strikes. What was that like? It was actually quite traumatic for everybody involved. I think when Faisal, the individual that we mentioned in the book, a Yemeni man whose nephew and son-in-law were killed in a drone strike, spoke to drone operators. I mean, I think he was a little emotional, but he was most emotional for the drone operators. There was a radio technician, Sean Westmoreland, a uh, DCGS operator, Lisa Ling. And I think it was actually very, very hard for them to be able to meet and talk to people whom they might have targeted. But I also think that, particularly from the point of view of the, the soldiers, it can be very rewarding because it helps them seek forgiveness. I'm not sure that it's as helpful for the people on the other side because an apology from one operator who's already blown the whistle is very different from getting an apology from the government. I wonder if there's um, some kind of common thread between the inaccuracies of the drone program and the problems with the mass surveillance programs we discussed uh, at the very beginning of this interview, that there's a certain hubris that comes attached to access to this type of data that's not justified by what the data can do for you? We believe the technology is magic. We all do. You know, if you have a cell phone and you use it to find your location, to conduct a transaction of any kind, we place a great deal of faith in our, our electronic devices, that the money will go to the right place, that we will arrive in the right location. And the reality, of course, these devices are fallible. 
We have transferred that belief in this technology mistakenly into the idea that these devices can then now decide who is guilty and who is innocent and that we can kill the right person with this. And that's deeply problematic. So a lot of people say, well, the technology can only get better. But I also believe the technology is not equal to justice. There, under no circumstances can information gathered by a machine be used to actually fire an autonomous weapon to kill somebody. Now, when we look into data, we tend to believe that we say, okay, a spreadsheet. I create a spreadsheet. I put a lot of numbers in there, and I push a button, and it adds it up or creates a, a, a pie chart or some such thing. And we therefore think, well, if we put all the data in the world together, we will definitely get a correct result out of it. Well, actually, the information on our phones is a whole group of random data that we should be very careful about drawing conclusions from. And one of the issues that I think Snowden referred to but never really explained in great detail, which is this drone program, is he actually decided he needed to speak out, not simply because of mass surveillance, but because he realized he's being used to kill people. And he said a couple of times, I became really, really concerned. We are concerned that, that unfortunately, and hopefully our book will try and address some of these issues, what we, we have done with mass surveillance have transferred this into a story about us. You know, our privacy is being violated, and that is wrong, and that's problematic because they can hunt us down and blackmail us. Well, there's actually a much bigger problem, is if our data, from which very little can be derived accurately, is used to target people, innocent people will die because data cannot give you accurate answers. So it's not just because we could be targeted for things that we did do. It is actually because data can be used to target everybody th for things that they didn't do. So it's not about, well, uh, it's okay for the government to follow me because I didn't do anything wrong. Well, actually, the government has a lot of data. They may jump to conclusions and kill you. So I think the problem is not simply the invasion of our privacy, which I which I uh, am opposed to, but the very fact that if you use data to achieve justice, you are going to actually end up making not just a lot of mistakes, but you are almost certainly going to create blowback. And it seems like there's one more dimension to it too, which is that faith in data and the faith in the algorithms that sort through it absolves individual people of responsibility for the consequences. The same way Facebook can get called out for helping to spread fake news before an election and just say, well, we're not a news publisher. Right. This is just what people are circulating on our platform. As if every decision they made about how their algorithm would prioritize stories and recirculate stories wasn't also an editorial decision. Having that level of distance that comes from having an algorithm between you and the decisions makes the immediacy of pushing the trigger something that happens further from the shot callers. Well, it's one thing, and I, of course, think it's a terrible thing that Facebook gathers our data and sells it. Facebook says, well, this is okay because we are simply, you know, we're business and we're making money at it. And if you don't have to be part of this business, you could, you could not be on Facebook. But it's a very different thing if you use that data not just to sell ads, but you use it to kill people. And it is essentially the same kind of algorithms. There's a term that has been uh, 
circulating among activist groups uh, recently called algorithmic justice. And I, I really uh, think this is a very important concept because algorithms are simply trained mathematical procedures. There are ways in which we make decisions, but they're not necessarily correct decisions, but it's being used increasingly in deciding who goes to college, what kind of sentence a prisoner will get. It is the same kind of algorithms that are being used. And there's been a call by mathematicians to open this black box. There's actually a book called The Black Box of these algorithms and see what's behind them and see whether or not they're accurate. So this applies to Facebook, it applies to school admissions, it applies to sentencing, and it very much applies to drones. We should not be using algorithms because, in fact, it is not soldier, just soldiers, but these algorithms that decide where the camera will be pointed and who will be killed. Pratap Chatterjee, that's all the time we have. I want to thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me, Brian. Pratap Chatterjee is a longtime investigative journalist. He's currently executive director of Corp Watch and co-author of the new book, which is a non-fiction graphic novel, Verex, The True History of Whistleblowers, Drone Warfare, and Mass Surveillance. That does it for this edition of Upfront Tech. If you like what you're hearing, help us out. Rate and review us in whatever app you use to listen. It really helps us get the word out. Upfront Tech is produced and hosted by me, Brian Edwards Teeker, with help from Lucy Kang. We've been aiming to get an episode up every Friday. We have also been failing miserably. But what we do do is make sure episodes go up here before they go to the airwaves. So if you subscribe, you are always getting the latest. If you just found this, especially if you live in the Bay Area, you might also like the daily show that we produce at KPFA. It's called Upfront, No Tech. We're on live weekday mornings from 7 to 9 a.m. Pacific, streaming at kpfa.org, or over the terrestrial airwaves at 94.1 FM. We also love to hear what you think. Send email to upfront at kpfa.org. <laughs>